Packet Pusher sponsor Tufin has pioneered a policy-based approach to network security management using automation and analytics. As a result, you can make network changes in minutes instead of days, reliably and securely. Tufin, the security policy company. Visit them at www.tufin.com and tell them the Packet Pusher sent you. One of today's snazzy sponsors is Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft. Move, manage, and secure Active Directory, Office 365, and much more. Visit quest.com slash datanotspod to find out more. Quest.com slash datanotspod. I hear about companies that create net new DevOps roles and hire quote-unquote DevOps engineers to fill them. And then those DevOps people fail in their roles because no one wants to deal with the additional process they tend to create. And so I've been wondering, is hiring specific DevOps roles doing it wrong? Maybe to succeed, companies instead need a transformative approach. That is, take the people you've got and then through retraining, retooling, and reorganizing, foster a different culture that is DevOpsian in nature. Then maybe you'll be successful. Am I right? We explore this idea of hiring DevOps today on the Data Knots podcast. I am Ethan Banks, and with me is Chris Wall. We joined my networking transporter with his virtualization rocket to make a spaceship exploring the ever-changing infrastructure universe together as the Datanauts. Since 2015, Datanauts has been a part of the Packet Pushers network of podcasts for information technology professionals, and you can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. Our guest today is Maddie Stratton. Maddie, uh, I'm just going to hand off to you to introduce yourself. Go ahead, sir. Please tell us who you are and what you do. Absolutely. So again, my name is Maddie Stratton. I am a DevOps advocate for PagerDuty, and which basically the way that I always describe my job is I say I've worked in technology operations for two decades, and now they pay me to talk about it. Yeah, so I, I go to tech conferences, uh, give talks about DevOps and incident response, and basically how not to be a jerk to each other. And it's a pretty good gig. And I get to talk to a lot of really smart people, which is the best part of my job and help make everything better for our customers and prospects and just people in the community. Yeah, that's excellent. Now, I, I, digging through all of your different feeds, because there, there, are, there are several of them, I, I noticed a theme here. And I have to ask, does your hair have its own social media presence or, or does it <laughs> let you do all the work for it? You know, I'm surprised that until you just asked this now, it didn't occur to me to create a Twitter account for my hair because I'm the person that creates Twitter accounts for everything. The history of this, by the way, is about six to seven months ago, someone posted on Twitter and said, Maddie Stratton has the best hair in Devrel, fight me. And I was like, <laughs> and the problem is now I want to get a haircut and I can't because it's like a brand and like my coworkers talk about it and it's a whole thing. So, you know, eventually you become that which you, you know, seek or something. I don't know. <laughs> Something make, cheap. Sure, make sure to take out an insurance policy on it. It's now, yeah, you know, for real, right? it's part of your branding. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking back to when you first heard of the term or really the idea behind DevOps, what was your initial reaction? Was like, ah, this is cool. This is stupid. This will never work. You know, hey, get me some kind of what were your thoughts? So the funny thing is I actually know exactly what my reaction was because years ago, I used to use this thing called time hop that would like go back and be like, on this day in your social media, five years ago, you posted this, blah, blah, blah. And a few years ago in Time Hop, it came up to some stuff I was posting on Facebook of all places when I was first learning about DevOps. And one of my first reactions was, 
okay, fine. But in DevOps, who patches the servers? <laughs> this apparently was my biggest concern. <laughs> and I look back at it and I'm like, oh, you sweet summer child. Uh, <laughs> the other thing that I know uh, that I recall was when I first started to learn about DevOps. And I'm like, okay, this might be a thing. I want to understand it. I was listening to a bunch of podcasts. And one of them was a podcast called DevOps Cafe with uh, John Willis and Damon Edwards. And at the time, it was the only real show in town. And I was listening to one of the first episodes I listened to was with a guy named Jez Humble. And he was talking about the concept of continuous delivery. And I distinctly remember I was driving down the Eisenhower Expressway in Chicago, listening to this episode, yelling at my radio, saying, that would never work at this e-commerce company I work at. And then Jez says, well, this is how they did it doing HP LaserJet firmware. And I was like, oh, got it. <laughs> so at first, I, I really didn't get it. I think it was a big part is I, I saw it initially thinking that it was like no ops. It was like, just give dev root done, haha, you know, or that it was just not going to work unless you were this unicorn. You know, and again, irony, I was working for a dot com even, and I didn't think it would work for us. So I've, I've certainly come around and a lot of that just came from education and just awareness of things. And this was back in 2013. So this was relatively early on in the movement. And I was having these, these thoughts. So I, I, I've been there. If you don't get it, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you, you've been there and you, you've been immersed in DevOps for quite a while, is this like an IT trend, DevOps? Is it a trend that's eventually going to go away? Maybe we don't call it this anymore. And I've, I've, I've said before, I think DevOps is relatively unfortunately named because it implies that it's just about software engineers and ops people, but its name has become a thing and it's kind of synonymous. I mean, it is definitely a way that we do work. And there's a lot of data that proves that if you want to be a successful organization, this is what you have to do. So I don't think it's, I think it's pretty well cemented. I think there's a lot of confusion and a lot of uh, difference of opinion about what we mean when we say DevOps and what it can be. And we can sit and we can, you know, do a whole, whole, whole podcast all about this. But at the end of the day, it's about a better way of delivering value to your users and your customers. And every company is a software company. Every company has to do this because we have to move at greater speed. We have to be responsive. If you aren't doing this, someone else is, and they're going to come and eat your lunch. So I don't think it's going away. It's continually evolving. I think all these things have to be evolutionary and not revolutionary as we're starting to learn more and more about them. But it's it's definitely here, right? It's 10 years old this year. The first DevOps days was 10 years ago in Ghent, which was kind of considered to be the first use of the term. It's a decade. It's not a small amount of time. Then I got a follow-up question because marketing folks love to glom on to terms uh, like cloud and software defined. And of course, lately DevOps has been cropping up in marketing literature. Do you have advice for practitioners who are trying to see through DevOps related marketing nonsense? So there may be questions that they should be asking to cut through silly, bogus marketing claims that are related to DevOps stuff. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, uh, it makes me think when talking about this, I remember years ago, I was working for uh, a consulting company and we were starting some DevOps practices. And I specifically went to our head of marketing and I said, look, before you ever use the word DevOps in any of our material, you need to check with me because I don't want to end up on some website list of these top 10 DevOps marketing fails or anything. <laughs> and, uh, and so one of the things about that, if I'm a practitioner or I'm a decision maker and I'm trying to understand this, is the questions I would always ask is, how is this going to change how I work? 
how is this going to change how I deliver value? Not how is this going to let me deploy containers faster? Like that's getting into the nitty gritty, but like what's the value proposition? And ultimately, how does this affect a business outcome? And traditionally, you would even with DevOps, you say, how does this affect how my teams work together to deliver that business outcome? This is a whole other podcast topic. I, I We got to dive into at some point, maybe uh, talking about how an engineer can learn to think about the business, because you said, this isn't about how I can deploy containers faster. That's that's too in the weeds and too nitty gritty. And yet, I was having a conversation with someone last night who is an automation expert. And as he begins to work with companies that are trying to automate their, their network in this particular case, he works with engineers who just can't figure out no, I just want to create more VLANs. No, no, back, back out, back out. Zoom, zoom, take take the lens, get the wide angle. What is the business need driving you to create VLANs? And they can't. They just go, I, I, I just want to create VLANs. <laughs> it's, but it's super important to map it back to that business process. You have to. And it's one, I have a couple of tropes that, that happen in my talks a lot. And I used to have one where I would say, raise your hand if you identify with development, raise your hand if you identify with operations, raise your hand if you identify with the business. And then I would say, everybody's hand better have gone up in that last one. So there's that, right? We are all, there is no the business. So that's one thing like, and I think words matter and how we talk affects how we think. So one thing, if you want to start thinking about business outcomes is strike the word, the business from your vocabulary. Don't talk about what you're doing with the, because we think about the business in IT a lot as sort of this other, these others, right? Okay, well, number one, we're all the business. So let's just get over that and be done with that. The other thing is, in a lot of my talks, I'll say, do you know how your company makes money? If you don't, go find out, I'll wait. Because if you don't know, and I don't mean at a high level like, well, we help people find apartments that makes their life better. No, you make money by selling leads. And do you know how much a lead is worth, right? Because mm-hmm. knowing those business outcomes, knowing those specific ways in which you generate revenue, and I understand that every organization is revenue generating. So kind of if you're a not-for-profit or you're a foundation or something, you can make the extrapolation. How do you? What's your unit of value? How do you measure value? How does your company measure value? Because you will find, uh, I'll give an example. So I used to work for a company called apartments.com and our unit of value was a lead. We sent leads to management companies for people who wanted to rent. And lead delivery was so important that our general manager had said once, and he said, I'd rather have the website down if we can't be delivering leads because that's how we made money. So that tells me what's the most important thing. The most important thing is lead delivery. So the decisions I make all go back to that. They got to be able to distill it down to that. Don't disagree. And I wanted to pick apart something you were talking about. And I've been to the one in Austin and a few other places. So certainly have my opinions. But from your perspective, why would someone listening to the show kind of A, why would they attend? And then B, kind of what should they expect to get out of the experience of attending a DevOps days? Sure. So the first thing to be aware of is that every DevOps days you attend is going to be slightly different because while there is a global DevOps or days organizing team that I'm a member of, we just sort of provide advice and guidance. So every city is a completely autonomous event that has some similar guidelines, but the flavor is completely different. 
Um, for so example, it's like all going to be donuts, but some will be glazed, other will be maple, other will be cake. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and hopefully, you know, they're you know not like tuna sandwiches or something. Like we try. That's what Core tries to do is make sure that you're still Taurus, right? You're still a Taurus, <laughs> but whatever you put okay. on it is kind of up to you, right? Donut um, adjacent, yes. You need to be at least yes, donut adjacent. I, I generally feel like the best part of any conference is the hallway track anyway, right? It's the fact that you're going to an event with like-minded practitioners, or even if they're not like-minded, they're in similar challenges to you, and you have a chance to talk to them. DevOps Days is very focused on what we call open spaces. Sometimes you might hear it called an unconference or whatever, but there's always some type of emergent content that is attendee-driven. And even so far as I heard Andrew Clay Schaefer, who was one of the two people that started the first DevOps days, said if it was up to him, the entire event would have been open spaces, but he knew companies would not pay to send their engineers if there weren't talks. So a lot of times the idea is the talks are there to drive conversation in the hallway track and in the open spaces. What you'll find too at a DevOps days is that it's um, in the programming world, they talk about polyglot conferences, right? So like a GoTo or something like that, as opposed to like PyCon. And DevOps Days is kind of polyglot in terms of that because you have lots, it's very broad in terms of the attendance, right? So you're not going to necessarily have this talk up there about like BGP routing for multi-data center, right? Because like a lot of people, they're like, that doesn't necessarily apply to me. So they might be more general topics, but they're still very focused. So you're going to also, because it's this sort of polyglot approach, I may be an ops practitioner but one of, and also DevOps days tend to be single track. So if I want to hear the Kubernetes talk, I probably got to sit through the testing talk. But that was really great because now I heard about something. Like I wouldn't go to a testing conference, but I'm going to learn about software testing because I went to DevOps days, right? There's sometimes the, what we might call the eat your vegetable talks, right? You know, like <laughs> I really want to hear this, this other one. So I'm going to sit through this other one, but it's going to make me exposed to it. And then maybe I'm going to have conversations about it. Um, they're very community and practitioner focused. So you're going to find people doing the work are both the people that are presenting and that are also part of that event. So it, I mean, we think it's great if CIOs want to come to DevOps days, but that's not the majority of the folks who are there. Uh, so it's a really great way to kind of see what's going on in the larger space. Um, that's also completely vendor and sponsor agnostic. Like one example, there's only a few rules for DevOps days organizers, but one of them is that you cannot buy a talk. So there are no talks at DevOps days that someone paid to play. So maybe there are people who work for a vendor. Like I work for PageDuty. I give a lot of talks, but I don't talk about PageDuty. You know, I talk about concepts and ideas or maybe how we did things at PageDuty. That resonates for me because I definitely, there was a lot of talks that uh, did not hit on an area that I had an expertise in. So it was going to be a fly on the wall. And then I remember after one talk, it was, this was like years ago. Afterwards, there was a uh, like a, a big poster paper put on the wall. And I was like, here's the three things that we kind of want to go off in different directions and talk about. And if you feel like adding to the list and, and forming a group to talk about it, you can. Yep. And uh, I was like, I'm just going to pick an interesting talk that I know nothing about and go into that open space thing, which was really weird for me. I've never really done the open <laughs> space thing before. And I was like, oh, cool. We're just going to nerd out on a topic. And in this case, it was like Docker or something like that. And uh, people were talking about their pain points. It was just interesting to hear when you're more advanced in these different technologies, what are you focused on? What are your problems? So at least I know <laughs> how far I should be able to get before I'm hitting the problems they're hitting. Absolutely. So DevOps Days, if I want to attend one, it sounds like it's not like this one big event that happens inevitably on the West Coast somewhere in the U.S. It's They're scattered all over? Yes, I believe there are over 70 this year worldwide. 
So they happen, every city that does one will generally do one once a year. I don't know any city that does more than one in a year. So if you go to devopsdays.org, you can look and you can see all of the cities that have upcoming events. And they're all over the place. And they can be really, sometimes they're really big events or in really large metros. So like, for example, the largest one in North America is Minneapolis. They have like 900 people, which I know for some conferences, that's nothing. But compared to like, I was at DevOps Days Nashville last week and there was like 200 people. You know, so you can, some, some are smaller or like 100 to 200 people. Some are seven, eight, 900. So it all depends and they're all very different, but it's really great to try to go to the one that's in your local geo, because that's also your local community. Uh, and it's a great way to make connections. Maddie, you are also involved with a podcast called Arrested DevOps. Uh, can you tell us about that? It's been around for a long time. Maybe uh, tell folks what it's about and I don't know, recommend three episodes for folks that have never listened to it before and they want to get their feet wet with the with the rest of DevOps. Absolutely. So the show started uh, because it, it actually started out where as a name for a blog, where I was going to write a blog about DevOps. And one of my friends, not in tech, suggested the name Arrested DevOps. I'm like, well, now I have to do something with it. And the reasons I started the show was, like I said, when I was learning about DevOps, I started listening to a lot of podcasts. And most of them were not aimed at people just getting started. They kind of implied people had been around doing this for a while. That was the audience. And so I forced myself to listen to them. I'm like, I even though I don't understand most of this, I will figure it out because like I so much want to do that. And so the idea of the show originally was, I always used to say, we are the show for the people where your boss read about DevOps in the in-flight magazine and came to you and said, we need some of this. <laughs> um, I good, good, uh, don't know any in-flight magazines like that. that talk about DevOps. Um, I, I believe somebody actually found something once and <laughs> told me about it. I was like, oh, that actually happened. <laughs> the thing that was interesting, and, and y'all doing podcasts understand this too, you can't control your audience. So we always were geared towards the very nascent beginner to DevOps. But then a lot of people started listening to the show who were not new to it. And I was like, why are you listening to the show? You should be on the show. So we kind of cover both. We are a panel-based show, similar to this where we have guests come on and um, the hosts interview them. And we can talk about all sorts of topics. We'll talk about monitoring. We'll talk about culture change. We'll talk about security. What does it mean to be a principal engineer? All uh, you know, cloud things. And uh, yeah, we've been around for about six years now, give or take. Uh, it's been a great experience. Someone once said that the dirty little secret of tech podcasting is this is how you get cool people to come and talk to you for an hour. And that's certainly true. You know, people that wouldn't necessarily be able to go up to at a conference and say, let's sit down and just chat for an hour and shoot, shoot the crap, right? Um, but I could be like, come on my show. And they're like, absolutely. So it's super great. A couple episodes, I, I had a really hard time with this because... Uh, there was a point when I knew all of the episodes by memory, so I had to sit back and, and, and think about what I would recommend. And I've got three for different reasons. So one is an episode we did at the GoTo conference two years ago called Old Geeks Yell at Cloud. That was with Andrew Clay Schaefer and Brian Cantrell. They literally were yelling. Like we actually had to have the proctor at the conference come and ask us to be more quiet because they got so wound up about topics. So uh, Andrew and Brian are kind of well-known uh, gadflies in the industry, and putting the two of them in a room together was highly entertaining. I did a show years ago called DevOps Culture Change with someone named Bill Joy, who Bill is not in the tech industry, but he's someone who did a lot of leadership training at an organization I was at, and he's a, he's a kind of a change consultant. And we talked about all the things, like if you're trying to make a cultural change in an organization or in a team, what are the things you have to do? And I, that's a, was one of the first episodes we ever did. I still point people back towards it. 
And then recently, uh, our most recent episode, we interviewed Sylvia Botros from SendGrid, Twilio SendGrid, about what does it mean to be a principal engineer? And I thought that was a great episode because this is a title that's kicked around a lot. And so Sylvia talked to us about what it means for her to be a principal engineer and advice if you want to become one and things like that. So it was very practical. Interesting. Um, I like that a lot. And it was also one of the episodes with our new co-host, Jessica Kerr from Atomist, uh, joined us on that one, which we're really excited to have Jessica again. Oh man, what a good point around confusing DevOps and NoOps. You know, I know Maddie brought that up, and, and NoOps for those that aren't you know key to these little terms get floated around. You know, the premise of NoOps is that it's kind of this IT environment that it's so automated, it's so abstracted from the underlying infrastructure that you don't need people to kind of run the in-house software anymore. Possible? I mean, maybe. Who knows? But that's not the focus of DevOps, so don't get the two confused. Uh, what about you, Ethan? Two somewhat abstract points that that just grabbed my attention. One, Matt made the point of strike the words the business from your vocabulary because he made the point we're all the business. And he's exactly right. When he said that, I'd never quite thought about it that way because even though as an IT professional, I've tried to align myself with business processes and talk to business stakeholders and work with them on technology projects, I have this subconscious divide between technology and IT people and the business. But in fact, we are all one and the same. That really hit home with me when Maddie said that. The second point is the hallway track. We've talked about that before, uh, Chris, a number of times. The value of going to a live event because you get to meet people, quote unquote, in the hallway outside the talks and find other resources in the IT community, people that are like you, that you can exchange knowledge with and uh, work on projects together virtually in a way just by exchanging notes on how you're making use of tech and solving problems and so on. That hallway track is incredibly valuable. And I think maybe the best reason to make the effort to go out to a live event. pause this podcast conversation for just a moment to hear from sponsor Tufin, the security policy company. As enterprises embrace digital transformation and adopt new technologies, IT and cloud environments become increasingly complex and vulnerable to attack. In this environment, the network change process can become a security-driven bottleneck. Tufin has pioneered a security policy management platform to bring automation and analytics to security and network operations. With Tufin's policy-driven automation, each change can be implemented in minutes instead of days, removing the chance of human error. This can significantly accelerate the development and deployment of revenue-generating apps, providing tangible business value in the nearer term, all while securing the network. How does Tufin deliver on these promises? In at least four ways. One, end-to-end security change automation. Automate access changes across enterprise firewalls and hybrid cloud platforms to increase productivity and eliminate misconfigurations. Two, unified security policy. Define and enforce a central zone-based segmentation matrix to strengthen security posture and meet regulatory mandates. Three, compliance and audit readiness. Ensure compliance with corporate security policies and external industry regulations with a central console for real-time change tracking, including who made the change, when and why, a complete audit trail and audit-ready reports. Four, a single pane of glass for managing security policy. Tufin Central Console provides policy analysis, search and optimization capabilities across vendors and platforms, and features an interactive topology map of the network. Tufin, the security policy company. 
Visit them at www.tufin.com and tell them the Packet Pusher sent you. And now, back to the show. So now that we know a lot more about kind of the introduction to DevOps and where it was heard from and some conferences and things, let's kind of dig into the meat. So, Maddie, I'm hoping you could define DevOps. And I, I know lots of different definitions, different angles to look at. But in this conversation, I think it matters a lot because DevOps means different things to different people. And I think we have to establish that before we move forward. Absolutely. So one of the things about DevOps is that the early practitioners went out of their way to not define it, which yeah, maybe was a problem because then <laughs> everybody comes up with their own one, which is like, just automate all the things. They're like, no. But there's three definitions I really like um, that I didn't come up with, but I, I think they espouse kind of how I think about it. So Donovan Brown from Microsoft has said, DevOps is the union of people process and products to enable continuous delivery of value to our end users. Uh, Ken Mugridge of ThoughtWorks says, a culture where people, regardless of title or background, work together to imagine, develop, deploy, and operate a system. And then my absolute favorite one is Adam Jacob, who's the founder of Chef. And Adam said, it is a cultural and professional movement focused on how we build and operate high-velocity organizations born from the experiences of its practitioners. And these all come, the, the references to this we'll put in the show notes so you can read more about them. The thing I love about Adam's definition is it breaks it down into three things, right? It's both cultural and professional. It's about building and operating high velocity, but it comes from experience of its practitioners, right? Nobody sat in an ivory tower and wrote a bunch of books and said, this is what DevOps is. This was from people doing the work, from companies having the transformation, kind of sharing their practices with each other to make everybody better. And that's really what DevOps is all about, I think. Okay, in the context of that definition then, you've been brought in as a consultant, let's say, to a company and they want you to help them adopt DevOps. What questions do you ask them? So there's a couple and I've done this. So I did have a stint as a quote DevOps consultant. And one of the things uh, when I would go and do interviews, so first of all, if I'm talking to practitioners, my one question I always ask is, I have an IT magic wand. What is your one wish? Because that's one way to kind of find out what's problematic. Um, interestingly, every company always has different wishes, but everybody in ops always has the same wish, which is more people in ops, uh, <laughs> which is where automation comes into play. The other thing is the question I ask is, I, I, I ask, how do you make money? But then I also ask, what is the process? Let's map out the process between when you have an idea and that idea gets in front of somebody for feedback, whether it's a customer, a customer, prospect, whatever, and doing that value stream mapping exercise. That's like number one, because the whole point of this is figuring out how we can do this with greater quality and speed, right? And it doesn't mean like YOLO deploy 3,000 times a day, but it's like, how do we minimize waste? And that's the way usually when most people have not sat down and really thought the whole thing through and gone. So when you do this exercise, you get a lot of, oh, whoa, why do we spend all that time there? And this is how you identify these bottlenecks. But the reason for doing it besides identifying them is it's sort of guiding the conversation into that kind of lean methodology, right? To think about how can we eliminate waste and understand it? And let's think in that process and the process of the idea between whether it's like what John Willis calls commit to cash or idea to realization. That's the process we're talking about. We're not just talking about deploying software. We're not just talking about, you know, uptime of servers. It's actually how do we go from an idea into realizing value? So tell me how you do that. That's like one of my first questions. 
I, I you know, I, I'm kind of wondering, I think all this stuff sounds great for me and I get it. And I think most people in our position get it, but then we have to sell it, right? We have to market and sell that to, you know, business is the ugly word of this podcast, you know, the business stakeholders, the people that manage and lead and decide, you know, promotions and bonuses and what you do. Like, how, how do I sell that? You know, because I have a feeling if I just start doing it, I essentially will like get in trouble or like, wow, what is this? What is this weirdo doing here with all this random continuous pushing of code and things like that? And it may get confused to what you're talking about in the kind of the earlier part of the show of like, this guy's trying to go no ops and completely eliminate ops. And then you have this internal antibody that might kick in. Absolutely. So from a business stakeholder perspective, and, and I've, I've given talks about like, how do you sell this? And one is called the five love languages of DevOps. And the principle is depending <laughs> on who you're talking to, just like the love languages, like you have to know somebody's DevOps love language because the thing that makes the most sense to me doesn't make the most sense to the CFO, right? Or to the data center manager or something. So you have to kind of understand the drivers of the people because everyone's are different. But one way that really helps is to understand and find out what is the mission of that person. Right. Because especially when you talk about higher up the food chain, everybody's got their mission statements and their value propositions and all this stuff. And it goes back to I'm sorry, you have to understand the business motivation. Right. Because that's what's going to matter to them and say, this is how doing this will help fulfill the thing that matters to you. So the buy in and this is the other thing that we find really interesting is that at the very senior level in an organization, so at the C-suite and this SVP level and everything, they're all in on DevOps. They're like, yes, give me some of that DevOps it all up. And practitioners get it too. What we run into is what we call the frozen middle, right? Kind of the, the, the folks in the middle, because a lot of times their fiefdoms, if you will, are being challenged by this. Their uh, authority might be, they may feel like they're going to lose some responsibility and lose some authority. So a lot of that has to do with uh, understanding that when you're in this frozen middle, you actually can really help be a change agent to make, make things better. But the only way that any of this works, and this is the, the, again, it's just about uh, these these, these man management and senior management needs to understand how their language and incentive to their folks influence behaviors, whether they want them or not. I'll give an example of like where a buy-in has to matter, right? It's like how what you measure is what people will do. So one of the things I talk to people a lot about is during an incident, when you're having an incident or an outage, don't litigate severity, which means when we're on the call, all that matters is getting service back. So let's not have a big argument about whether it's a sub one or a sub two, because that's wasted time. And by the time we're done arguing, it's going to be a sub one anyway. Um, <laughs> so I talk to places who say we do that a lot. And I'll say, how does your senior management measure effectiveness of your team? Oh, how many sub ones we have in a month? Well, of course. So now all you care about is mean time to innocent. Right. You know, so you don't want to. So the thing is, you want to measure human performance, not against metrics of the system, because we will gain those metrics every time. So the buy in that 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 uh, business stakeholders have to have is say we are going to measure the things that matter to the business. We're not going to put proxies in to do human measurement based upon performance of systems because people will gain the system every time and you will not get the behaviors you want. One of the things that can really move the needle for a business stakeholder, help them to make a decision is just to be blunt about it, money. So when you're having these conversations with these folks, you, we can talk about process and we can talk about efficiency and all that, but sometimes they want it quantified. So is, is there a cost to an IT team if they want to move to DevOps? Is there maybe a cost to not moving to DevOps? And then is there a way you can calculate that ROI, turn it into some kind of a number that a person would be able to make a decision around? 
not to go back to business outcomes, but that's what it boils down to. Like you have to say, if we do this, we will be able to deliver more value in this way, right? And the thing is, a lot of times people will look at this and think like, oh, well, if we do this automation, it'll cut down headcount. Automation is never a headcount reduction exercise. It's a reprioritization and reallocation of people. So you can sit there and you can say like, if we do this, then you know we've got these big fat salaries over here to people that we've been paying to just copy files around. Now we can actually be using this to optimize the system. And this is what they're going to do. And optimizing the system is going to let us deliver leads 10% faster. And we know a lead is worth this amount of money. So therefore, we will make this much more money. So the ROI always has to go back to, again, it's back to understanding how software engineering, how, how the engineering folks, how the product folks, how the ops folks deliver value to the business and how will it move that needle. Yeah, that's so true. The whole automation doesn't, you know, eliminate headcount. Sure. I mean, A, I don't think any department manager, be, being one myself, is looking to remove headcount. We never want to remove headcount. We hoard headcount. It's like our precious commodity. So I'm always looking for ways to be more efficient and use the people that I have or or get more, you know? But but also, I also yeah, remember yeah. old jobs where it was just like, what was my job? It was going around to computers and inserting a CD and installing software. Heck yeah, I wanted to automate <laughs> that. That's soul-crushingly boring, you know? <laughs> When I did that job, I read a lot of books. When my job was to drop Smart Start CDs into Reliance and click Next, I was like, and the Smart Start setup, I'm like, yep, I read a lot of sci-fi in the data center. Absolutely. So I'm always looking for what is this repetitious thing that I can get off my plate so I can do the fun stuff. Maddie, you just said Smart Start CD on compact servers, and I just, uh, <laughs> on this magical trip back in time, oh my word, I'm sitting there in a really cold data center waiting for this thing yeah. to finish building. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> well, it also brings up a topic that I think it's a bit uh, contentious on the internet and whatnot. It's just this DevOps engineer title or role. Uh, is there such a thing? What is their purpose if there is? Because I obviously see it out in the ether. You know, it exists. But what is the role? You know, it's like I am the DevOpsy person. You know, I'm really trying to, I'd like to take a little bit of the the kind of cynicism off of it and figure out what it is and what it's supposed to do. So here's the thing. I've kind of given up on this fight a little bit, mostly because it was pointed out to me by uh, Pete Cheslock that I think DevOps engineers make 30 to 40% more money than system engineers. So I'm like, yeah, go get that money. If, if changing your mm. title gets you paid, then Don't good. Be a hater. Do yeah. that, right? That's awesome. <laughs> I look at the title of DevOps engineer and similarly DevOps team as a code smell. Right. So we talk about in, in software engineering, a code smell is like, this isn't necessarily bad, but it makes me start to wonder and start to, to ask more questions. And usually having that title or team means that you're thinking about DevOps only from an automation perspective. Right. So most of the times when I when I hear people are a DevOps team, it can, and then the, which is made up of DevOps engineers is they tend to be maybe cloud operations. So they're the people who are kind of like running AWS for the team or they're the developer tools team, right? So they're running Jenkins and, you know, all the build pipelines and things like that. Or sometimes they're just rebranded sysadmins who are making more money and they're being paid a lot more money to change tapes. Um, those things exist too. You can't, you, no one's a sysadmin anymore. It's a job that doesn't exist. Now you're a DevOps engineer or an SRE, which is a whole other thing. We could talk about calling a thing a thing doesn't make it a thing. So a lot of times I think it's okay to be a DevOps engineer if your role is to either be embedded in a product team, kind of being the subject matter expert, being that T-shaped person that is focused on maybe cloud operations and continuous delivery and the infrastructure of doing the DevOps things 
but having a whole different, you know, kind of center for doing that takes away from the whole principles of how any of this stuff works, because it's also expecting that team to understand way too many things. Our systems are too complex, right? So for example, if you're like, well, we're not going to teach everybody chef, we're going to have a couple of chef experts that are going to write all the automation for the whole enterprise. Wow, does that suck? Because now they have to understand every single application, every single bit of infrastructure. Whereas if we said, let's just sort of level everybody up a little bit and teach them just as much as they need to know for their area of domain knowledge. So that is a much more effective approach. And it, it, it happens time and time again, right? These, these centralized teams, they tend to just create a new silo and it's just a new bottleneck, right? Now, DevOps teams that work as tiger teams or dojos or anything that kind of help educate and train and, and then are the ultimate subject matter experts on those, those things I see work really well. And if that's the kind of DevOps engineer you are, which is you're the subject matter expert in these technologies and you help and you enable all these other feature and product teams to use them as opposed to just being communicating with tickets all over again, then you're doing it. I almost Mm. said you're doing it right. I think you're doing it much more effectively. Hmm. So would that be things like helping people understand sprints and, you know, the actual processes and how to assign points to tasks and things like that. And then the tool is kind of the secondary focus. Yeah. Well, you could still be the subject matter expert on the tool and help people understand how to use the tool. So before I worked Mm. at PagerDuty, I worked at Chef. So Chef is, you know, a lot of people are like, we're just going to throw some Chef at this problem and we'll be all DevOps because we installed Chef. You have to learn how to use it. And it's not just about like how to write a recipe. It's about how to think, right? And then part of it is also, how do I learn how to write a recipe? So we would see organizations where they would have a team where they were the Chef experts and then they would spend time embedding with these other teams, again, helping them understand the concepts, but then also saying, let's pair, let's, let's write this together. Right, because I'm a super, and then if it's something that's well beyond, it's something idiosyncratic that requires a deep expert, then we'll help you with it. We'll just kind of do that for you because there's no need for this software engineer to like become the super duper chef expert, but they should be able to have some basic knowledge. So, so basically, if we're lacking, if we're lacking process and tools, and just have people, a DevOps engineer, if you will, can kind of help with both at the same time. Absolutely. Maddie, one of the things that has come up a lot in this conversation is is change. There's going to be some process change. There may be some tooling change. There may be some uh, people change. What does that mean for the people that have been around a long time? Um, the, the folks that have been longtime contributors to the team, the organization is changing to DevOps. W- what does that end up meaning for them typically? So it depends on how the organization is changing to DevOps. So if it's changing in terms of that we are going to spin up and we're only going to do DevOps in our brand new cloud native, awesome greenfield stuff, what it's going to do is it's going to make a lot of resentment, right? So this was this thing that Gartner had, was was spousing a few years ago called bimodal IT, which was like, hey, your system of record systems, that runs the old broken way and that's totally fine. And like all your cool new hotness gets to be DevOps. And that doesn't work out so well because it just creates you know a lot of contention. now. And if you're doing this transformation where you're saying we are taking a more collaborative approach, your longtime contributors become incredibly valuable assets because they have all this deep tribal domain knowledge and they're contributing and they're working together. The problem is uh, for some contributors, if you kind of, and we all know there are such people exist, right, who have been doing the bare minimum and they actually are happy being a server janitor and just copying files around then yes, but you're not contributing, right? Like you're gonna, but but most people actually want to do great work. 
And most people have a lot of knowledge, even if they aren't aware of it. So being able to say, instead of it being this thing where I'm used to having to hold on to my knowledge, because that's how I keep myself safe, because I'm the only one that knows how to do this thing. So they can't fire me. Well, I got news for you. Number one, they super can. Um, and they super will, but <laughs> you're actually going to become a much more valuable part of the organization that is harder to get rid of. The more embedded you are with other teams and the more you collaborate with them, because they'll be like, this person is essential, not because of this little bit of knowledge they have, but because of how they're working together. So it's hard because we're, this is a very dramatic shift in how we think about working together. We're used to saying, I control this thing. And it is my baby and I make sure it's okay. And heaven forbid anybody touch it because I don't trust anybody because they will mess up my thing, right? That's like kind of how we're used to doing it. Now we're saying, come in here and let everybody have their dirty little hands in your thing. And instead of like putting up even more shields, you need to be like, how can I actually work with these people so that we all make the thing more awesome? It's really hard. I'm not going to lie. It is super duper hard. Uh, and this is why it's important for an organization going through the transformation to make sure that you're incenting that kind of behavior, right? You're rewarding yeah. yes. that collaborative behavior because we are humans. We go to, and it isn't necessarily about money. Not everybody is money driven. It's not about how, but that can, but now taking money away. That's the other thing I'll say. People will say like, I'm not money driven. So throwing bonuses at me doesn't help. Super true. Taking money away from you. I don't care if you say you're money driven or not. If I'm going to take money away from you, you're going to get pissed. And so if it has to do, do with my ability to get a raise or my ability to get promoted, that's a way you're incenting behavior or descenting that behavior, if that's the right word. I like what you said about, um, I don't think you use the word management, but, but, but effectively that's what popped into my head. If management is on board with getting people to work together and communicate in a way that is going to foster this new culture, that's, that's key. If you have managers that want everything to remain siloed and they're very controlling, then it becomes very difficult to to be transformative in the way that you need. Well, my blamelessness is the core of everything, right? Like a culture of blame is a culture of helplessness. And if you think you can't fire your way to reliability is a, is a trope that I like. And if you think that punishing people for mistakes is going to make them make fewer mistakes, you're wrong. They're just going to be really good at hiding them. So, but this all comes in terms of how your leadership acknowledges and how public they are about things and how they think about things. So when your CEO uh, of Equifax goes on and says, I got to find the person that did this so they can get fired. If I'm working at Equifax, I'm immediately going on LinkedIn and looking for another job because you've just told me that I need to protect myself or you will fire me, right? That is a huge ripple effect through the whole organization and it affects the ability to make any of this work happen is understanding. It doesn't mean everybody can just sort of YOLO and do whatever the hell they want, but understanding that you're not looking for, you know, and there's just in verbiage that we use, like how many times have you had, uh, or maybe we I've even used it myself when you're like, I want a single vendor. So I have one throat to choke. Wow. Did I just say a huge thing about how I think about things happening is I want to know who do I punish? If I'm looking for who do I, punish? <laughs> even if I'm not the vendor, even if I'm the employee, I'm like, okay, CIO, you just told me a huge thing about how you think, even if I don't realize that you did but it will affect my behavior. Words matter. They super do. It sounds squishy. And we're talking about tech. That's all ones and zeros, but we're not made of ones and zeros. We're fallible human meat bags and words affect how we think and how we act. Absolutely. We're actually made of unicorn tears and pieces of bacon, but I, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> let's, let's pause it for a moment that 
you're, you know, you've listened to this, you're an IT manager and you're like, okay, I'm on board. I'm in that, that cold middle layer that you've been discussing. I need to train, train my people. I need to send them to DevOps training. Go. Is that, is that a thing? Like, what do I do? What do I do? You know? I mean, the thing is there's, there's lots of people. I, I have a, a talk I give that's called hot takes, myths and fake news where everyone's wrong about DevOps, but me. And one of the myths, quote myths that I say is not a myth is that you can't buy DevOps. I'm like, you can't buy DevOps, but I can sell it to you. Right. Um, so, so there's lots of people that will want to sell you DevOps training and you absolutely can get trained on technologies. And that's super helpful. And in fact, some of them will do a really good job of helping you understand how that changes. But that's one of the things when you look at the train, there's no overall in my mind, and I'm sure people will sell it to you. Come and get, I mean, you can get DevOps certified. What does that mean? That's like being certified. I mean, like, yeah, you can also get agile certified, but what, what value does that provide? It means that you're good at ceremony, right? But it's, it's, um, so if you're going to try to make this change, you can certainly get trained in tools and techniques. And I think that that's a valuable thing to do because you have to learn how to do this stuff. Um, what I would do is when I'm looking at DevOps training is I would say, is this, how much of this is also about how we have to change how we work? And is that something that you offer? How we change how we work? Not about like, how do we, um, and again, I don't, don't give me your big framework and, and here's all the new forms I have to fill out and everything. Like what are the exercises that are going to happen? So those things do exist these trainings, and some are better than others. I don't have any off the top of my head that I know are great. I know that, for example, and you know, I'm, I'm I guess endorsing Chef, but this is only because I know. Like when I would do Chef training for customers, I also trained them on how to think differently about doing things. And I'm not saying Chef's the only one that does this, but like kind of look at that when you're looking at training, like being trained on a tool is great, but how much of it is not, of that training is not just about the syntax of the tool or the implementation of the tool from a technical perspective, but how are our teams going to change when we do this? Like, what can we do? And, and the thing is, a lot of the DevOps vendors are good at being able to help you with that because they help people do it all the time. But it needs to be a focus. It needs to be uh, addressed, not just like, here's how you docker all the things. Great. Like, how do my developers work differently now? How do they have to think about orchestration differently now? Those are things that have to come into play. And there's not an easy answer. It sucks. And the problem is, again, in the absence of a not easy answer, a bunch of people will come up with easy answers and they'll happily sell them to you. So ask a lot of questions. That's that's what I would say. Maddie said, quote, I have an IT magic wand. What is your one wish? Close quote. I loved that because it just cuts right to the heart of what you're trying to get done. If you're trying to think about things, it's not all these bits of minutia and details and, and, and things you're clicking and, and, and servers you're trying to launch and this cloud thing you're building, that's not it, really. You're, you're, it forces you to put all of those things away and distill all of that down into what your one IT need is. And when you think about it from that perspective, I think that is very valuable when you're doing an analysis of, of IT and your IT group and your team and your processes and how it all works. If you had that magic wand, what is the one thing you would wish for that would presumably make it make it all better or improve things the most? What was your takeaway, Chris? Well, my answer to that would be a very fancy coffee machine. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, very fair. <laughs> but, but in seriousness, uh, yeah, so another thing that Maddie brought up was uh, what you measure is what people will do. And the question that you kind of have to ask, especially as you're trying to sell these concepts and, and promote them upstream, is how does management or senior management measure me? You know, what are those KPIs and metrics? And 
this kind of thinking will encourage the adoption or the rejection of DevOps concepts, right? If you're not adhering to those, you know, what was it, the five love languages of DevOps, you know, that idea makes sense because you have to figure out what your stakeholders care about and help them make those decisions based on things they know. And you can't just come at somebody and throw a lot of weird terms and things that aren't important to them and expect them to become your champion. One of our sponsors today is Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft. In a nutshell, Quest takes the complex things about your Microsoft environment and makes them easier to deal with. For instance, let's say you're dealing with a move to cloud, or maybe a merger, or maybe you're doing both at once. What happens? With too much to do, you start making mistakes. You give out more permissions than you should because you got too much to deal with and sticking that user and that group and that OU wasn't the right thing to do, but it was the convenient thing and it lets you go back to writing that script to help you migrate accounts. Oh yeah, your scripts, the canned tools, some open source thing you found, you're stirring all this stuff together with a keyboard and a mouse, and it's sort of working to get the project done, kinda, as long as no one else has to use it and the CSV files are in just the right format. Ugh, it's ugly. This is where Quest software fits in. With Quest, you can migrate without end-user disruption. You can improve the migration process by using more automation and less roll your own and hope it works. And you can maintain a compliant internal security posture. No more over-permitting because you didn't have time to figure out how to do it right. Quest fits in when you're facing migration to a new SharePoint or you're migrating to a new Office 365 environment. You're consolidating AD and Exchange. You're securing Active Directory from insider threats and more. Quest has been doing this for a long time. They help manage 184 million AD accounts today. Plus, they've migrated over 95 million accounts and 74 million mailboxes. They have had time to get their software right something that Gartner recognizes about Quest, listing them as the only cloud office migration tool offering all 40 features and functions key to have. By the way, Quest isn't only selling software and hoping it works out for you. They also have a support team you can reach 24 by 7 by 365. And if you just rolled your eyes because you hate vendor tech support, Quest has been recognized eight times for customer support excellence and has a 93% customer service satisfaction rating. Odds are that if you do need to call Quest support, the experience is going to be pretty good. To learn more about Quest software, your go-to for everything Microsoft, visit quest.com slash datanotspod. One more time, that's quest.com slash datanotspod. And we thank them for being a Datanauts sponsor. Maddie, we've been talking uh, a bit more business-oriented of a conversation around DevOps, and I want to shift to more cultural and practical sorts of questions around a DevOps practice. Uh, so I, I thought this would be a good way to open things up. Can you highlight a project or an experience where DevOps was applied in a useful way? One thing that comes to mind, and it's not necessarily, maybe it's a little more general, but I think it illustrates why it's important to be able to bring these practices together is I spent a lot of time doing like kind of proof of concept stuff when I was a chef. So I go to a lot of large enterprises who are like, we want to learn about this chef thing. And we'd be like, great, bring a bunch of people over for a couple of days. And like, we'll, we'll kind of walk through it and we'll do some practicing. And what happened almost all the time is because all these different teams would send like one or two engineers. And so these are people that have never met each other before. They all work for the same big multinational enterprise and then maybe they've been working on the same floor in the same building, but they've never met each other before. And then we're in this organization, we're in this like classroom 
And then during a break, they're like, oh, so what do you do? Oh, yeah, I do Apache for this guy. I do Apache for this team. Oh, wow, we do the exact same job. And let's go have lunch together sometime. And like, let's do this. So the whole thing is like just, and and then what happens, and I know because I followed up on some of it, is then they actually do that, right? So this cross-cutting, cross-functional stuff happens when you bring people together. I mean, I know for a fact, just in general, what I have seen in the companies I've worked for as well in the space, even if they're DevOps vendors, they follow DevOps practices. And one of the things that's absolutely that I've seen 100% true at PageDuty has to do with how we respond to incidents, right? Like when we're having issues because we're following these DevOps practices of these cross-functional teams, we're getting all the right people involved. So DevOps is super helpful when it comes to dealing with inevitably when something breaks, right? Because you know you can get all of your domain experts and they're already used to working together, right? Like there's so many times I worked for large banks that were very traditional IT and we get on an incident call and you'd have people introducing each other to each other for the first time and they inherently have to work together. So it's a security person has never met the ops person before. They don't know them from, and then they're already got this barrier up there. So when you're following these DevOps practices where people are involved with each other all the time, when things go south, they're already used to working together. So I think that's super effective. That's something I've seen as a direct uh, improvement. And again, restoring service is really important because when you're down, you're not making money, right? And for some retailers, that's millions of dollars a minute, right? So being able to restore service quickly, having DevOps practices already in place for your day-to-day means that in your incident and your outage time, people are already used to working together. They already know how to do it. I think that's super effective. Yeah, you're highlighting it's the stories I've told on data knots before, but you're you're highlighting some of my very favorite way to do cross-functional alignment. Get those folks that have their different deep levels of knowledge talking together and working on designs together and used to communicating together and learning each other's languages so that right, when you have that outage or that big event or the new project. Um, that base layer has already been established and it's much easier to get things done going forward. I want to pick your brain on something that I read uh, around like Google's SRE principles in, in their book, and which I think is like kind of adjacent to some of the, the processes and things we're building for a DevOps world. And, and Forrester's, you know, Forrester was the one that published this thing saying like basically about half of everything in the SRE book can be, applies directly to your enterprise and can be initiated like right now you can just go back and do it and this is things like serviceable objectives and error budgets and monitoring for latency and saturation all that kind of jazz they're like do it right now and i i feel a little conflicted on the one hand sure i don't think there's anything inhibiting people from doing those things i don't think they're google specific sorts of things but on the other hand maddie you're, you're bringing up good points like this is not easy this is a change this is a different way of thinking Kind of just looking for your thoughts on this. You know, is there a balance there? Are they right and wrong? Kind of what your thoughts are. Totally. So the first thing that I would say, and this is why I'm really excited that that Google they did a second book. So the Google SRE book is here's how we do it at Google. This is maybe interesting to you. That's how you should read that book. You should read that book as something that's interesting. Then they came out with the SRE workbook. That's the book you read once you've read the first one. It's like, okay, now here's how non-Google people do stuff right? Mm. Because Google is the only people are the only people that have Google problems. And you need to understand that number one, right? So um, I think the SRE, I, I think you need to read both books. I think they're both great. But I think the SRE workbook is so helpful. And it was driven by the fact of people saying, wait, wait a minute, I'm not Google. Can I do SRE? 
Um, I don't like getting into like the label thing, but I, I sometimes talk about GSRE versus SRE. So GSRE is Google SRE. This is specifically how Google does things. And some of it just doesn't apply to you and that's okay, right? And then there's SRE, which is the general, the more generalized practice. So I think, and again, a great example of that is SLOs and SLIs. I mean, there's, there's no reason to not start thinking that way because it absolutely helps. And if you go and you look at the research, the DevOps research and the set that Dora has done, and that's in the book Accelerate in the State of DevOps Report, a lot of these things are directly tied towards measurable outcomes of performant organizations. Um, and I, I highly recommend, if you're having a hard time selling these practices, you need to look at, you need to use the book Accelerate and the State of DevOps Report because this is science. Because this happens a lot. A lot of times these things don't feel right to senior management, especially blameless. They're like, oh, but I'm so used to it. My entire career has been based upon knowing the right people to fire and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, great. Let's talk about how your gut feels. Now let's talk about some data. Let's talk about, you want to argue with some math? Here's some math, <laughs> you know, some statistically accurate math right. of what's happening. So that's the thing. It's like, yes, this stuff is hard, but look at the stuff that's actually proven and that's proven to help organizations of your size. And this is also why conferences really help because you can read about all the stuff that Netflix does and all the stuff that Google does and all the stuff that Facebook does, but you're a bank. So you know what? Go to DevOps Enterprise Summit and go talk to a bunch of other banks that have actually done this, right? And it super applies. So I, I think that's the, I definitely run into this. I'm not, I'm tired of hearing about Facebook. I'm tired of hearing about that. And that's why I'm <laughs> glad that large enterprises are, suddenly we got to this thing and, and it really did start with DevOps Enterprise Summit. Because back in the day, we knew enterprises were doing these things, but no one was talking about it. And all we heard about was from Dropbox and Flickr and Facebook and Etsy. And so then you think they're the only people doing it. Now, J.P. Morgan Chase and the Department of Immigration and Target and Best Buy and General Motors and MasterCard, they're all talking about it now. And you're like, oh, cool. Someone else. And the thing is, if I know what thing is possible, I can achieve it. If I don't know what's possible, it's hard. It's harder because I might spend a lot of time and have no effect. But now I know we have 10 years worth of information telling us this stuff works. SRE has even more than 10 years worth of information. So it will help. But you're right. Like, it doesn't all apply. And so you need to say, how will this actually affect me? And I think the SRE workbook helps you see how it can affect other organizations besides Google. Let's have that people problems uh, question, <laughs> Maddie. Uh, what, what people problems are a team likely to run into during a conversion to DevOps that are going to prevent them from being successful? One thing is going to be absolutely um, letting people understand that, that blamelessness is really a thing. And unfortunately, that's not a thing you realize till you actually break something and don't get fired. You won't believe it until what happened. So that can be really hard. And you and the other another problem that I see again from a, from a people perspective is some of us have been in this industry a long time. We've heard a lot of stuff. We've seen a lot of fads. We're like here's the latest thing, whatever. I've seen like 13 different things happen over the last 30 years. So I'm just going to wait for this to run its course. And I'm just going to similarly I'll sit there, I'll be compliant, but I'm not all in. So the 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 problem and this stuff comes in with a mandate, right? If you don't have conversations, if you don't involve people, in how this is happening because your DevOps is different than my DevOps. And that's okay. Every snowflake has six sides, you know? So we're all six-sided snowflakes, but then the details matter. So that's why you need to have your practitioners involved in how these details happen because they know better than your CIO about how work actually needs to get done. So the more involved, the earlier and the more involved people are, 
that will help a lot of that resistance because a lot of it is going to be resistance to a mandate. Okay, here's the C-suite telling us we got to do the latest thing. They don't know how stuff works around here. So whatever, right? Um, also, there is still this challenge of product prioritization, right? Because you're making changes to how you're doing things. And there's things that are not directly connected to a feature. Well, your product folks, who are the people who control your backlog, they don't care, right? They're like, what does this do? So it's a matter of thinking about how you get... So that's a, that can be a, a problem where you're like, wait a minute, we in this sprint, we actually have to spend a little bit of time defining... I mean, again, you wanted to find SLOs and do all this stuff. This stuff takes time. You have to figure out when you're going to do that. And and you don't always have, depending on your organization, your team may have no control over your actual time allocation of stuff. So you have to get the people who manage your backlog and your prioritization to understand why this stuff matters. Uh, and there's ways you can incent that. This is just a whole theory. I have this theory that the that product managers should be responsible for reliability because suddenly all that stuff starts to matter when they're on the hook for it, right? Um, one of the things I think is great is that some of our incident commanders are product owners. Wow, those products become very concerned about reliability when they actually get paged about it and have to run a call. So there's things you can do. Again, we're all human. Read the, here's the best thing you want to You want to know like how to really understand how to make a DevOps con conversion? Go read the book Freakonomics and learn about incentives, right? <laughs> and learn how people work because it's all about incentives. Well, yeah, like you said, uh, you know, what you measure is what people will do. And uh, also a big fan of Freakonomics podcast too. It's, yeah. uh, it's good stuff. <laughs> so so I, I, wanted to, I wanted to offer a question here that hopefully will help those that are listening to the show. And that is, you know, is there, is there something small or even just iterative from a take a step perspective that I can do or the IT shop that I work in can do to start that journey for becoming DevOpsian, if you will? So... The best way to do this, because all of your convert, all of your your transformation is going to be iterative. So that's the first thing. So if you're even thinking about it that way, rad, because that's the only way it's going to work. Nobody just goes and says, "Well, people do all the time, but it doesn't work." Over like, we're ready to go DevOps, ready, steady, go DevOps, right? It's all small stuff, and and just like agile transformation, when it works, it works small in pilots. But the first thing you can do to start to make things better is to go through that value stream mapping exercise. Just understand how does your team, what are all the things you do to deliver value? Like what's this, the actual steps? And then we do this and then we fill out a ticket and then we do the blah, 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 blah. Find the biggest bottleneck and focus only on that and make that thing slightly better. Because also theory of constraints tells us that any optimization made on either side of a bottleneck is a waste. So you figure out your biggest bottleneck, the, the thing that slows you down the most and focus on fixing that. And then you move on to the next thing, right? And another way you can think about it, which is slightly different, I know it's going to sound different, but like if we think about tech debt in a way, this is kind of a metaphor that may get away from me, but uh, there's this principle called a debt snowball. So if you're paying off credit card debt, like logically you pay off the highest interest rate first because that's what's going to save you the most money. But psychologically, some people say you should pay off the lowest balance first because then you have an accomplishment. So that's another thing too, when you start to lift things up, like again, theory of constraints tell us one thing, but if you're trying to at least get some success, maybe there's a thing that maybe it's not the biggest like bottleneck according to theory of constraints, but here's the thing you identify that you're like, we can actually fix this thing in like a sprint. And then we had some success, right? We, we accomplished something. So think, so I guess what I'm saying is like, don't, when you identify these things, again, you're going to get the most effect out of, out of removing the largest bottleneck. But there might be some that, you know, maybe you can do a thing to let you feel good about yourself. 
as a team to say, we actually did accomplish a thing because we're able to do it quickly. And then we can start to build up those muscles to tackle the bigger things. Um, it's going to depend a lot upon who's involved in your team and what makes sense to you. Maddie, this has been a fantastic conversation. And now I just want to talk to you more, but we don't have time <laughs> to talk to you more today. Um, however, in our show notes, you collected a whole bunch of resources that people can dig into to find out more. You want to walk through some of those? Absolutely. So just a high level. So one, I've talked before about the book Accelerate uh, by Dr. Nicole Forsgren, Jess Humble, and Gene Kim. It's the science of lean and DevOps, right? It's about the data behind it. It's a great, great read. And if you like audiobooks, it's also on Audible, so you could listen to it, which is great. There is, uh, it's, you know, five years old, but Adam Jacob, the founder of Chef, gave a great keynote about what he calls chef-style DevOps, which he gave at ChefConf in 2014. So I, we have a link to that. It's a great keynote, even though it's a little bit older. It's about a lot of the philosophy. That is a good way to think about things. Again, if you want to learn more about DevOps, the rest of DevOps.com is our podcast. You can find us in all the podcasty places. And I'd love it to, to get, you know, more people involved in that conversation. Twitter is you know, can be a terrible, terrible place, but it can also be a great place to learn. Uh, so I've got a list of a whole bunch of people that just sort of came to mind initially that are great people to follow on Twitter that sometimes talk about DevOps, sometimes talk about other things because Twitter, right? So, you know, take it what you will, but you might learn some stuff. I think you should attend your local DevOps days. And I also wrote a post on my blog years ago because I was tired of sending the same email to people that are like, what's DevOps? Um, with a bunch of, it's mostly a link to talks and things, but it's at mattstrand.com slash tech slash DevOps. It still has some useful stuff. So maybe it's a good place to start. Yeah. And I'll just recommend if you go to mattstratton.com, you will find the world of Matty Stratton because uh, Matt, <laughs> you, you link to all different kinds of uh, your sites and you've got a collection of talks there, your schedules there where you're going to be speaking next and so on. So you've done quite a good job of helping people stay in touch with you and uh, providing lots of resources and reading material and so on. Uh, when you go there. So again, worth your time, mattstratton.com, just broadly, in addition to that, um, uh, that, that DevOps resource page that he mentioned. Now, if you're listening to the show, yes, lots and lots of links and resources. If you go to packetpushers.net and click through to this DataNOS episode, you can find it from the menu bar. It's pretty intuitive. All those links will be there. And, uh, and then dig through and enjoy lots and lots of DevOps information for you. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots Podcast. You can reach me. I am at EC Banks on Twitter. And my blog is ethancbanks.com. Chris is at Chris Wall. And his blog is wallnetwork.com. And we Data Knots interview folks from all over the IT industry. Folks that are trying to do things better, breaking down silos and pushing the design envelope, creating new tech, sharing with the community, learning and unlearning and improving and asking hard questions. We talk to them as they explore the IT universe, taking us places that we haven't already been. And until then, may your server lights blink, your culture be transformed, and your cables be cleanly managed. So, Matty, I, I did a bunch of research uh, for this show and did a bunch of creeping on you and got onto your Instagram feed. And uh, so I've decided to ask you this question. Darth Vader's TIE fighter crashes in Westeros, north of the Wall, and he walks away from his burning craft, wandering in the frozen wilderness, and he meets the Night King. What happens next? Wow, that's, a, that's one for the ages. I think what happens is Darth Vader pulls out his lightsaber and he chops off the Night King's head, and then he turns to camera, and he says, the showrunners have altered the story. Pray they do not alter it further. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and well then we, 
we actually pray that they do because it's gotten kind of bad. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs>